Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Ian Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we'll have a usual format for you today. We'll start off with a news roundup in which we will talk about the uh, rumors that Apple has been looking at making investment in or even acquiring the British uh, luxury car manufacturer McLaren and possibly also a, uh, a motorcycle uh, manufacturer as well. Secondly, Google finally released the Allo messaging app that it talked about at I.O. back in May. And then thirdly, we'll talk about Comcast's announcement that it plans to finally launch wireless service in the U.S. in 2017, something that's been rumored for a long time, but now is finally somewhat official. Uh, then our question of the week will be about uh, product recalls. Obviously, the context here is the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 recall that's just finally happened last week after several weeks of unofficial recall activity. And so Aaron's been going through some of the academic research and other sort of history around product recalls and to try to find what lessons about recalls we can pull from all that and that we can then apply to what's happening with Samsung and help to put that in context a little bit. So that will be our question of the week and that will be our middle segment. And then our third segment, I'm going to be sharing some thoughts about uh, the iPhone 7 Plus and Apple Watch Series 2 that I've been using since last Friday. Just talk about some of my uh, first impressions of those. I'm in the process of writing up a review at the moment that should be out uh, hopefully the next day or two as well. So that will sort of put that in context. And then we'll wrap up with uh, a weekly pick as well as usual. Well, I'll, I'll recommend a couple of apps that I've been using. Uh, so let's start up with the uh, news roundup. And the first piece of news, as I mentioned, is this uh, report from the Financial Times confirmed by the New York Times and other publications subsequently that Apple was looking to make some kind of an investment in McLaren. And McLaren is the UK-based manufacturer of very high-end cars that can sell for as much as a million dollars each. Um, only makes about 1,500 cars a year and also uh, makes cars for the Formula One racing and so on as well. Um, and uh, subsequently, the New York Times also reported that Apple was looking at making an investment in a company called Lit, which makes self-balancing motorcycles. So, Aaron, what did you uh, make of these two stories? Um, you know, who knows where they're going with that lit acquisition, if that actually materializes. That's a self-balancing motorcycle. You know, maybe there's car design implications with that, but that might just be an aqua hire, right, where they're just getting talent um, to come along. Because, it's, it, I mean, it's not a company they're buying for market share or anything like that. The McLaren one, I think, is really fascinating. And I know they got, you know, semi-denied today. And I won't be surprised if it never actually materializes. But, but uh, you know, that I think the idea of buying a really high-end manufacturer that's known for pushing boundaries, especially like in materials design, McLaren is known for using exotic materials in their car design, like carbon fiber and things like that, back when that was especially exotic. Um, you know, those kind of uh, designers that push boundaries, it's, it, that feels very Apple-like, especially from the manufacturing perspective. So, uh, you know, I hope Apple is, uh, you know, I think what's, what's interesting to me is not so much whether or not these two specific r rumors turn out to be true in the end, but rather the, the way they indicate that Apple is approaching this, that they really are trying to be incredibly innovative in their approach to the, to the car market. Um, that, I think, is where Apple, you know, can make its biggest and best contribution uh, in, in terms of their, you know, core abilities. So, I don't know. We'll see. I, I, uh, I love the, the feel of the rumors, <laughs> even mm -hmm. if they're not actually true. 
Yeah, it's, it's one of the most amazing things to me is that I think the current valuation is around a billion UK pounds. So it would actually be a smaller acquisition by quite some margin than Beats. And Beats right. was, you know, basically a fairly low usage music subscription service. Um, right. And this is a Formula One and luxury car manufacturer. <laughs> and yet yeah. this is, you know, going to be substantially cheaper potentially if Apple ends up buying it. So it's just funny the way valuations work in terms of the actual assets that you get and so on. And, um, you know, not to rehash all the beat stuff, but it's interesting. This is does seem to be mostly about kind of technology uh, in terms of materials and manufacturing and things like that, rather than necessarily uh, the car and the car brand and wanting to own that or, or that being a pointer towards where Apple plans to go, because obviously this is a, an extremely sort of exclusive sort of car that we're talking about here. But very interesting and, and certainly seems to be an evolving story around Apple and cars as well. Right. And if um, it wasn't for the Beats acquisition, I think everybody would dismiss this as crazy. But now that that's in the history books with Apple... Now everybody looks at a McLaren acquisition like, yeah, I could see that happening. <laughs> right, right, so. yes, because it's smaller, right? Yeah, it's quite right. helpful in that sense. provides a ceiling that you can get under, and then it seems more realistic. Right. Um, so the second news roundup topic we wanted to cover was that Google released Allo, which is its messaging app um, that features the Google Assistant. This is really the first kind of coming out party for the Google Assistant. That was a major theme at I.O. this year, Google's developer conference back in May. We talked about Allo as a concept back then uh, in our episode on I.O. announcements. So go back and have a listen if you want to hear what we thought about at the time. I, I don't think my opinion's really changed all that much, and I have spent a little bit of time with the app today. Um, didn't have a great first experience. It defaulted to using my work account, which is a Google, uh, Google Apps account. Uh, and that didn't support Allo, so it wouldn't let me do anything. And I kept trying to switch to my personal account, and it kept booting me back out to the, the error screen again. And, um, you know, it's a frustrating start for, for this kind of thing. And played around with it a little bit. The biggest single problem with it is it's a messaging app, and yet nobody I know is on it. And so, uh, you know, I can go in there to use the Google Assistant, but it seems a very strange way to get at sort of assistant capability when what I really want is to get answers to questions and things like that. You know, I, I want to go to the Google app and do that, not a messaging app where none of my friends are. And so they've done some things to kind of paper over that where you can send messages out to SMS and they'll still be delivered and so on. But, uh, you know, a lot of the functionality is going to be kind of useless for now unless lots of my friends suddenly decide to start using it as well. Um, the AI stuff's fairly clever. There's the whole sort of weird thing about having an AI compose your text messages for you, especially in response to, say, a picture that somebody sends you. It seems to lend itself to very non-genuine responses and communication, which, which would be my worry about using some of the sort of canned responses that it suggests. It seems to be all about streamlining you know, human-to-human -human communication, which feels inherently odd to me. But, uh, you know, in, in the uh, Google Assistant, I think, is going to be a lot more compelling than something like Google Home, which is their sort of Amazon Echo equivalent that's supposed to be launching fairly soon as well, uh, and, and potentially within the Google app and other places where you would more expect to find that kind of thing. But what was your take on all this? Well, I've been trying to figure out Google's endgame with this, um, because as a messaging platform, there's not a lot about it that's compelling or unique, with the exception of the AI that's baked into it. I mean, the chatbots, you know, the chatbot, you know, taking advantage of all the... AI stuff that Google's really good at seems to be the only reason to use it. And that doesn't feel compelling enough, especially, like you said, when you've got network effect problems where if you can't get other people using it, you're not going to use it because you won't have anybody to talk to. And so 
I wonder, you know, I wonder if Google kind of has a sense that this is going to be the case. I suspect they'll get I, I kind of see that maybe have two strategies that are going to be emergent strategies. One is maybe they really will get a lot of people using it, Android users in particular. And if they can get an Android nucleus, then maybe it'll spill over into the iPhone space. But it's really hard to imagine anybody dismantling, you know, messages in, on the iOS side. The, the other emergent strategy might just be that, you know, they get a lot of people talking about how great it is having uh, Google intelligence baked into chat. And then they'll figure out a way to start parlaying that into other chat platforms. Right. And then or Google, even put it into Gmail or somewhere where it perhaps makes a bit more sense because it's a platform right. where people are already using it and yeah. uh, you don't have to build the audience first. I mean, this definitely feels like a classic Google move, which is they, you know, they get something functional to the point that they're okay having a lot of people use it, but they really aren't entirely sure what to expect from it. Do you know what I mean? So right. they just sort of mm-hmm. put it out the door. I mean, it's telling that they said it would come out this summer and they launched it on the last day of what is technically summer. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. I, I think that's kind of indicative of, of, of their, I think it's telling about their approach to all of this. And mm-hmm. so, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a year from now, you know, they they hang it up or merge it with Hangouts or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's all going to hinge on how well the chatbot works and whether or not it's genuinely useful. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's go on to our third news roundup topic, which is uh, the announcement by Brian Roberts, the CEO of Comcast, that Comcast will finally launch its wireless service. It's been rumored for a very long time now. Uh, at some point in uh, 2017. And so the background here is that Comcast signed a deal with Verizon along with some other cable operators uh, about five years ago now, I think, where they agreed to kind of co-market each other's services um, in areas where Verizon didn't have landline service. You know, Comcast and other cable companies would help to sell wireless as a bundle uh, and so on. And But as part of that agreement, Verizon agreed to provide wholesale minutes and data to these cable companies should they ever want to launch their own wireless service. Uh, and Comcast, you know, five years later when the market's changed quite a bit and Verizon's probably not very happy about this anymore, is finally getting ready to launch something. There are absolutely no details about this other than that it will be basically promoted within the areas where Comcast is, you know, a local broadband provider and cable TV provider. So it won't be a national thing. It'll be more localized than that. Uh, and it will highly likely leverage Comcast's network of Wi-Fi. Um, but that's about all we know. So we don't know anything about pricing. We don't know about how it's going to be bundled, what the discounts will be for taking multiple services or anything like that. And this you know, follows many years now of cable companies dabbling in wireless and not really getting anywhere. And also of even the landline companies, AT&T, Verizon, in the past, trying to bundle landline and wireless services and also not getting anywhere. And, and part of the reason for that is nobody wants to get a three, $400 bill every month. Um, but if you add up cable TV and broadband and home phone and then a wireless bill for three or four individuals in a household, you're easily getting into that kind of ballpark. And so that's always been part of it is the bill shock aspect. But uh, you know, more recently, AT&T's been doing some bundling stuff with DirecTV that's been a bit more successful than that. Um, but obviously Comcast to some extent sees the writing on the wall here in terms of what's going to happen to the landline business as wireless starts to become the place where people consume more and more content and the broadband that people use that goes with them everywhere and they want a, a piece of that essentially and they're using that Verizon relationship to try to make this happen but any, any thoughts from you Aaron on this? Yeah I definitely think it's the only way that Comcast has a future long term 
I mean, the fact that Google Fiber is even moving away from landlines, I think indicates that everything is going to be wireless in the future. And to the extent that's true, um, especially when you think about how streaming works these days versus, you know, set cable packages and everything. I mean, the, the future is going to increasingly be everybody gets a data pipe that they pay for and they get everything through it, voice, you know, entertainment, web, all that kind of stuff. And so I think it's smart for Comcast to start carving out a place for itself um, in this space. I won't be surprised if rather than through partnerships, they try to actually build up infrastructure in this regard as time goes on, because otherwise they feel even less necessary. Um, yeah, I think the future really is, and I hope it's this way, where everybody, every family just basically pays for one, one data pipe that, that essentially connects all their devices, right? And I don't know if it's a metered thing where you pay for the amount of data you're using or if, you know, you're paying a premium for unlimited data, but I think eventually I could see a future where, you know, you've got one provider that's pumping out your connection to your phones, to your you know, for your home phone, for your home internet, for your television and all that kind of stuff. I, I hope the future is that way. And the, and the fact that Comcast is moving to wireless, I think, uh, makes that even more likely. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it works out. So much depends on the details of what they end up announcing. But uh, this has felt inevitable for a long time. I'm somewhat skeptical about the whole thing, but it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. It's already a very competitive market. And when you're competing off somebody else's network, as we've talked about previously with Google Fi, for example, there are limits to how aggressively you can compete uh, just because your, your floor in terms of your cost is set by somebody who you're competing with. And so right. it'll be interesting to see how this pans out and to what extent this is actually a moneymaker for Comcast or just kind of a hedge against the future to some extent. Well, let's move on to our question of the week. And our question this week uh, is, what can the research on product recalls teach us about the, the uh, Samsung Note 7 recall? And again, the context here is this uh, Note 7 device that Samsung released about a month ago now and which sold very well for a couple of weeks before uh, it became apparent that there was a fairly substantial issue with the battery. And uh, it's since been through both an informal recall on Samsung's part and a more formal recall in the past week or so. But this is obviously not the first product recall in history. And so Aaron's been spending some time over the last few days doing some research around product recalls and the history of them, but also about the academic research around recalls and how they affect companies that engage in them and that, that are forced into this situation. Uh, and so we're going to talk about the Samsung recall specifically, but we're also going to go back and talk about what we can learn from past recalls, how that should help us understand the Samsung recall that we're talking about here specifically. And then we'll talk about some overall learnings in terms of the best strategies. When, If you are a company or you work for a company that has to go through something like this, what's the best way to go about it? And what can we learn from kind of the history here and the research that's been done? So I think we'll start out by talking about the Samsung recall and just dive into detail. We've covered it a little bit in the past few weeks as it's become a news topic. Uh, but we haven't sort of dived into all the details of exactly what's happened and why and how it's been done. And so that seems like the best place to start. So Aaron, why don't you talk us through this Samsung recall specifically in a bit more detail? Well, sure. So first of all, we need to be specific to note that this is just the Note 7s. Um, you mentioned that earlier, but I want to make sure our, re our listeners understand that because that's actually been part of the problem Samsung has faced is, is 
is there is that it hasn't always been clear to consumers exactly what models are involved. The, the Note 7, well, there's actually about 2.5 million Note 7s that are subject to this recall. Uh, it's unclear how many of those have actually gotten into consumers' hands. Um, but uh, right now, Samsung is targeting replacing about a million Note 7s just in the United States alone. Canada has been affected by this, South Korea and a bunch of other countries. Um, Essentially, what's happening is the batteries are overheating and exploding. Um, it's related to a specific battery manufacturer that they've used uh, for this model of phone. That isn't true for all the Note 7s that they sell. The the ones that they've been selling in China have actually uh, actually have batteries from a different manufacturer, and they haven't had the same trouble with those. We'll talk about China in, in a minute. Um, the reported rate of failure is around 25 faulty phones for every 1 million sold which is a really interesting perspective to have on this because this is this is true for a lot of product recalls where it's actually a tiny fraction that are affected, but the consequence of the failure is very high. And so you get this highly concentrated impact on a small subset of customers. And because the impact is so high, it leads to a recall of millions of devices in this case that probably would have operated just fine. And so that's a failure rate, though, that's high enough that uh, that definitely deserves a recall and, in fact, was subject to government recall, not just a voluntary one by Samsung. Um, you know, we've seen this in the news, uh, not just the recall generally, but specific instances. Uh, there's, a, there's a plaintiff in Florida that's already filed a lawsuit against Samsung over his phone exploding and burning him. Uh, there was news footage of an SUV that was set on fire by a Note 7 that had a, an exploding battery. There's also a news report of a six-year-old boy in New York, that in New York City, that had been burned by a Note 7. It turned out, actually, though, that that was a Galaxy Core phone, not a Note 7, uh, that the battery had exploded. That particular Samsung phone has replaceable batteries, and so you can buy third-party ones. And it's now not known whether or not it was a third-party battery that actually exploded and burned that, that uh, six-year-old boy. But it turned out that one got a lot of press, um, but it didn't, uh, it didn't actually turn out to be a Note 7, which, which reflects part of the challenge that Samsung faces in this is the, the blurring across models and, and people considering all Samsung phones to be unsafe because of this particular model. Now, the reason Samsung has to be really aggressive about this recall is because of a legal principle called strict liability. Essentially, there are circumstances in which uh, if you've done something wrong, you are fully and completely liable no matter what, and it doesn't matter how negligent uh, the injured party is. Because most, most lawsuits like this are a negligence issue where, where you know one party did something bad or negligent. Another party, though, might contribute to, like the person who suffered an injury might have contributed to the injury with their own negligence. And then courts and juries have to sort of balance those. With the manufacturing defect, the law is actually what's called strict liability, which means the manufacturer is 100% and fully responsible for the injuries, no matter how negligent the injured party is. And the reason a strict liability standard is used is because some activities are just inherently dangerous. And because they're inherently dangerous, we want to incentivize those parties engaged in the dangerous activity to assume full responsibility and to be extra cautious. And manufacturing is one of those because you can, you know, when you're mass producing something, we have to incentivize manufacturers to use quality control 
otherwise a lot of people could get hurt because mass production can involve a lot of failure. And so the strict liability being applied to this case means that Samsung is on the hook for all of these Note 7s, even if somebody, after knowing about the recall, continues to use their Note 7. So even though they're being negligent by continuing to use it, strict liability still says that Samsung is on the hook if they get hurt. That's a big deal because, uh, according to App Intelligent, uh, people are still using their Note 7s at the same rate as before the recall. <laughs> and so this is based on web analytics of devices at, at, you know, connecting the Internet. But essentially, a bunch of people have bought their Note 7s and they haven't stopped using them despite all these warnings about the exploding batteries. Uh, this makes... Samsung more nervous instead of less nervous. If it wasn't for strict liability, Samsung could defend themselves by saying, oh, all these people, they were crazy for still using their devices. The way the law is structured in the U.S., that doesn't matter. And Samsung is still going to be on the hook if any of those people get hurt. And that's why Samsung has such a sense of urgency about this recall. The recall was proactive and voluntary by Samsung. Um, that's gotten a little muddied lately because uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission ordered a mandatory recall after Samsung started the voluntary one. Uh, when the CPSC steps in, it actually creates increased legal responsibilities for vendors, for uh, retailers that are selling the Note 7. And this actually creates an interesting point of contention. And the Consumer Reports wrote an article about this, how um, they were really bothered by the fact that Samsung didn't initially work with the Consumer Product Safety Commission to initiate a mandatory recall. Samsung just did it voluntarily, you know, contacted everybody saying, hey, we're recalling this phone. But because they didn't work with the CPSC, there's actually less legal significance to all the retailers. And it and Consumer Reports in this case has a pretty good point. I mean, Samsung should have gone to the CPSC right away and said, look, we need to issue a mandatory recall for this product. And because there was a delay, it meant that there were actually Note 7 still being sold by retailers, even though Samsung had already initiated the voluntary recall. It didn't assign enough legal responsibility to retailers to get them to stop selling it. Once the CPSC mandatory recall was, is was issued, that meant retailers had to take it off the shelf. Otherwise, they faced some pretty severe consequences. So that was a part where Samsung kind of blew it, um, that they should have initiated a mandatory recall as soon as possible. It's also interesting because the FAA, and this showed up in the headlines, banned the use of Note 7s in flight. So if you had a Note 7 and you were flying, you had to turn it off. This, in turn, led to a lot of the model blurring issue we just mentioned, where some flight attendants were for have been forcing people to turn off their Samsung phone of any kind. Um, which, you know, now that you can use consumer electronics on flights, that makes it really annoying, uh, especially if you, you know, had some other Samsung model phone besides a Note 7. Um, it's worth mentioning that uh, getting back to China, uh, they, didn't, they haven't issued a recall for any of the Note 7s sold in China. That's because there's a different battery supplier, like I mentioned. But it's interesting because news outlets are reporting that there are a lot of confused and upset customers in China. This, the news has reached the Chinese market, and Samsung is not managed that well, and so there are a bunch of consumers wondering when their recall is going to start, even though it never will, because their phones are already safe. Um, Samsung will be able to fix that problem now because they are in the, they've, they've released a software update for the Note 7 that will indicate whether or not your phone is safe. And so it'll show a green battery indicator if your phone is safe. If it's not, you'll actually get 
a recurring message, especially on startup or unlocking your phone that says this, you know, this phone is subject to a recall and, and uh, gives more information on how to figure out how to recall it. But the recall is a problem right now because, like I said, there are about a million phones in the U.S. that need to be recalled. And it's only been today that Samsung is reporting 500,000 replacements being shipped to the U.S. Now, obviously, there are more coming to replace all the others. But, but today, if you own a Note 7, and if everybody today who owned a Note 7 tried to get them replaced, only about half could. And it's probably not even close to half because I'm sure some of these are many of these are still working their way through the supply chain. And so this kind of brings us up to date with what's happening. I, I, I think, you know, what we can expect to see in the coming weeks is um, a long tail. And you're probably going to see people who still didn't replace their Samsung Note 7 for another two or three months. And there will be continued reports, which is just, you know, is just a problem for Samsung. I mean, they're going to, th this is a, a really sad outcome for them because there's really no way for them to win here. Um, you know, long term, I don't think we'll expect to see uh, necessarily permanent damage done to their brand. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But in the short term, this obviously is going to hurt Samsung a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting. I was with Samsung on Monday at an analyst event in New York. And, uh, you know, this the Note 7 absolutely was not on the agenda for what we were supposed to be talking about. But they ended up spending a good bit of time up front talking about it and some of the stuff that you've just talked us through. Uh, a couple of the other interesting wrinkles were just the logistics of recalling these phones. So there's the ones that are still in boxes will have a certain process. So the ones that were sitting on carrier store shelves and that kind of thing, those have one process for going back. The ones that have been opened and returned by customers as part of the recall will have a different process. And that process is subject to approval by the Department of Transportation and various other bodies. The FAA obviously has to get involved if they're being shipped by plane. So there are all these moving parts to how this all actually happens. So it's fascinating to kind of hear about that. Um, so that's the Samsung recall. You've obviously done a lot of research about kind of the history and, and what we can learn from that. Um, you mentioned just now briefly the kind of impact on the Samsung brand and when, whether that be lasting or not. But what do recalls generally do to a company? I mean, what are the impacts, financial and otherwise, that a recall, you know, that, that's kind of high profile like this have on a company, both kind of in the short term and the long term? Well, I mean, there there are kind of three big categories. One is obviously financial losses, and the the second is brand equity, which we talked about. The third is market share losses. So I'll I'll take those three in turn. Um, financial losses can be really huge. Um, I think it's interesting that for this particular kind of product, for a smartphone, it actually can create especially powerful financial losses, uh, disproportionate to other companies with other recalls. And I'll kind of explain why. The, the auto industry is is easily the largest source of recalls, um, at least in the United States, but I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that would be true globally. Um, and that's because there's a lot that can go wrong with a car. Um, in fact, recalls for cars in the United States aren't handled by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. They're handled instead by the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. And uh, we've all gotten probably, you know, multiple, all car owners have probably gotten multiple recall notices over the years. And it all relates to one specific part, like, you know, there the Toyota airbag recalls and the, the, the brake pedal recalls. And, and some of them, you know, historically have been pretty huge, like the Firestone tire recalls. Um, but, uh, but, the, but the truth of it is that um, 
the, the auto industry has a network in place to make recalls less expensive because there's a huge uh, number of, of dealer-owned uh, mechanic shops around the country, right, that are tied to brands. And so you go, if you have a Toyota that's, that's had a recall issued, um, which I think I have gotten three times over my life as an owner of a, of a Toyota car, um, you take your car into, you know, some local shop and they do the repair for free and then you drive away with a repaired car. And, uh, you know, the, it is obviously expensive, <clears throat> but there's a, there's a nice system in place for automobile recalls to happen. Um, the, other, uh, the other side of recalls um, from, from this are, are recalls involving products that are relatively inexpensive. So you'll have food recalls. Um, you know, the listeners may remember there was a recall on baby formula that was being produced in China um, that was actually dangerous to the health of the babies that were consuming it. You know, in that case, you don't have to take in your old formula, right? You just throw it away, and then there's a reimbursement process that takes place. And so there's a really relatively low cost there as well. And that's true for a lot of other inexpensive products like children's toys. Those are often subject to recall. And when a children's toy is recalled, again, it's the sort of thing that they don't need the toy back. They're not going to refurbish it. They're not going to try to capture value out of it. You just throw it away and they replace it or reimburse you. What's interesting about smartphones as a recall product that makes, I think, the financial loss especially high is that just because the battery's gone bad doesn't mean the device is useless. So it doesn't fall on the end of a cheap recall, right, where it's just a product you toss. Samsung is really keenly interested in getting these faulty devices back because it can refurbish them and recapture a lot of the value. But it doesn't have the network set up like cars do, right, where there are all these sort of authorized service centers around the country where you just show up and the problem is fixed on the spot and you walk away. Uh, there, I mean, clearly there are, you know, mobile phone companies um, and retailers around that are being enlisted in this recall, but it doesn't work with the same efficiency. Because you, for example, don't know if they if they have a replacement phone there, and it's kind of a logistical headache for Samsung to make sure they're getting the right number of devices in the right places. Um, and so I think this is going to be especially expensive as a as a category of recall. In fact, the estimates right now are that it's going to cost Samsung about a billion dollars to complete this recall, and that's the cost of getting new devices out recapturing the old ones you know they're essentially shipping two note sevens for the price of one um, not including the logistic headache of, of of coordinating all of this so it's going to be a very expensive recall for them to put that billion dollars into context i mean if this were to happen the year ago quarter financial quarter, fiscal quarter it would have been about a sixth of their profits so it's a, it's a it is going to be felt when um, they report at the end of september for for this quarter uh, well, I guess, well, I mean, a lot of it's going to be spilling into the next quarter, too, but but uh, you'll definitely see some revised guidance as a result of this recall. Um, the damage to brand equity is is significant, and a lot of research points to how brand equity gets hurt by these. Um, you know, every brand comes with, um, comes with assurance of quality. That's what brands are for. And a recall has pretty deep and long-lasting impacts on brand equity. I think in the specific case of Samsung, you can just point to the fact that flight attendants are telling people to turn off all Samsung phones. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, is, that is textbook brand equity damage right there, where it's unclear exactly 
what's dangerous in the moment. And so any, any device carrying the brand is now considered dangerous, even though in, in reality that's not true. And I think Samsung is going to feel that for a while. Um, and there are going to be a lot of confused consumers uh, because brand equity is always something that's never like precisely felt or measured or understood by consumers. And so it's going to be, uh, this is going to be something that Samsung will have, have to uh, uh, spend a lot of time and a lot of money recovering from. Um, as far as market share losses are concerned, I think, um, you know, obviously substitutability is a problem if you're selling a product that's easily replaced by a competing product. And we'll talk about this in a minute. Uh, you face problems in the case of Samsung when it comes to market share losses. Uh, there are a lot of analysts now predicting that the iPhone 7, specifically the 7 Plus, is going to have a disproportionately big launch because of the how the iPhone 7 launch lined up with the Note 7 recall. And so, so I, you know, and I, and I, it's hard to it's hard to measure what that would be even after the fact. It's going to be hard to measure. I mean, you can do obviously customer surveys and things, but. We won't know exactly how much of an impact the, the Note 7 recall is going to have on iPhone 7 sales, but Apple is definitely going to reap some of the benefits of, of Samsung's uh, failure here. So then I guess all of that leads to a bigger question, which is kind of if you were ever involved in a recall, kind of what is the best strategy to pursue? Because, you know, Samsung got out quickly here, which was a good thing, but on the other hand, they didn't go through the formal channels here in the U.S., and they've been wrapped over the knuckles, as you mentioned, by Consumer Reports and other bodies for, for doing that, for kind of not going through the government authorities and so on. So if you're ever involved in something like this, what is the best strategy? And is there a clear strategy, or is it a bit more nuanced than that? Uh, it, so there is a conventional wisdom strategy that's the best strategy. Um, but but the reality is there are some some caveats to, to that approach. Uh, there are really kind of three elements to any good um, recall. You want to be fast, right? You you don't want to you don't want to be slow in responding, and you don't want to be slow in acting. Um, so that relates to the second one is you want to be very proactive, meaning you make it as easy as possible for people to to carry through the steps of the recall so that you can get the unsafe product off of the market as quickly as you can. And so you have to be fast and proactive. And the third and really important thing where a lot of companies blow it is you also need to be transparent, uh, meaning you have to be totally forthright with consumers. They should know the risk involved. They should know um, that, you know, they should have assurances that, that uh, future products are going to be safe. The company needs to feel accessible, concerned, involved, and, like I said, transparent. And if you do those three things, you're going to do pretty well. Uh, you're going to do as well as you can is the is the conventional wisdom. Th there are some limitations to that. But, you know, recalls are – so I teach business ethics, as many of our listeners know, and recalls are a pretty frequent uh, topic in a business ethics class. And there are two textbook examples of recalls that are used all the time. On the, on the positive side, there's the Johnson & Johnson recall of Tylenol from 1982. Um, what happened back in 1982 is that seven people in Chicago died from taking – extra strength Tylenol capsules that were laced with cyanide. Now, um, at the time, Tylenol was about 17% of Johnson & Johnson's profits. This was a huge product for them. Uh, the over-the-counter pain medication market was, was very competitive. Um, uh, Tylenol had a 35% market share of over-the-counter uh, uh, pain med medications. Um, 
Johnson & Johnson very quickly concluded that, that the tampering that led to the cyanide poisoning didn't occur at any point when the medication was within their control. So this happened probably in the stores. And uh, there were also at the time false reports of Tylenol-related deaths in other states, just as like Samsung today is facing false reports of, of exploding phones elsewhere. And of course, the result was that Tylenol sales plummeted. In fact, marketing experts at the time predicted that the Tylenol brand was doomed and that there would be no recovery for Tylenol as a brand. But Johnson & Johnson did the, th the things right that we said that they should do. They immediately recalled and destroyed 31 million bottles nationwide. Uh, and they set up a toll-free customer hotline within a week so people could call and, and, and find out their risk. Um, they, they, they obviously replaced Tylenol capsules, but they did it with tablets so that they could, because it was, it was these liquid capsules that had been tampered with, and so they replaced with tablets that, that were, were, you know, less likely to be tampered with when it comes to cyanide poisoning. And this is actually a pretty unique thing. The CEO for Johnson & Johnson went on 60 minutes to answer questions. And a lot of the times executives insulate themselves from media scrutiny. And here the CEO of Johnson & Johnson got out in front. And they innovated as a result of this recall where they introduced tamper-proof containers. So we have tamper-proof medication today in stores because of this recall and Johnson & Johnson figuring out a way to indicate tampering um, when you buy medication. That was because of this specific uh, moment in history. It cost Johnson & Johnson at the time about $50 million. I mean, this was an expensive recall for them back then, but, but the brand rebounded within a year. We still can buy Tylenol today be specifically because of, of, uh, of Johnson & Johnson's approach to this. The, the example that's on the other side of this uh, that's used in class a lot is the Ford Pinto. Um, in fact, it's sort of the quintessential ethical failure when it comes to product safety. Um, if, you, if you know, the listeners aren't familiar, essentially what happened is the Ford Pinto was designed with a gas tank that sat behind the rear axle. So if you got rear-ended at a speed of 25 miles an hour or more, the gas tank would compress against the differential box and rupture, and then gas would leak out and ignite because it was near the exhaust. And, and people would essentially get trapped inside their their car their Ford Pintos and and instead of walking away from an from an accident they would have survived they actually end up would end up they ended up dying uh, Ford was incredibly slow first of all I mean the 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 cars with this defect started rolling out in 1972 and Ford didn't issue the recall until 1978 um, in addition to that they they were um, not only they were not only slow they they were not at all proactive. In fact, they were very resistant to a recall. It, it ended up being a Mother Jones article um, that, uh, that drew attention to this. With It turned out, historically, we realize now that the Mother Jones article is full of inaccuracies about the number of deaths caused by the Pinto. Um, but it, they were essentially forced to issue this recall. And throughout the process, they weren't at all transparent uh, with the public. In fact, it, there were congressional hearings. And and, and Ford executives had to testify under subpoena. This, is, this was the wrong way to do a recall, and Ford suffered uh, dramatically because of it. In fact, this, this brand stain persists today because this case is taught in business schools year after year, semester after semester. So, um, so, so I mean, those are the textbook, like that's all the textbook wisdom about recalls. There are two interesting complications that I dug up in my research. 
Uh, one of them comes from uh, an article in Org Science, uh, which is, uh, these are both from academic journals, obviously. Um, it turns out that uh, you would think that having a really strong brand and a really strong reputation sort of helps you through a recall. Uh, the research shows that that's not true. It turns out a good reputation can be a liability in a recall, meaning you can suffer worse because you had a good reputation going into a recall. And I think that's part of, I think Samsung is going to face that here. Um, the authors, Ree and Hans Child, found that uh, strong brands actually do worse. And this is in the auto space, but strong brands do worse following a recall. And uh, it's especially true if the recall is perceived as severe, which I think is safely the case with uh, with the with the Samsung one, and uh, and also if you sell a product with high substitutability, which I think is also the case, especially in the Android space, if not the smartphone space generally. So I think Samsung, because they came into this recall with a strong brand and a good reputation, I think it's actually in the end going to hurt them worse um, if we're to extrapolate the research onto the Samsung situation. And then the second thing that's surprising is that. Uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is to be very proactive with the recall. It turns out that, that uh, if you do that, your stock is going to do worse in the short run, um, which is also surprising, but holds up in the research. And so that one comes from the Journal of Marketing. And what the authors found is that, uh, is that if you're proactive, it signals to shareholders that this must be really bad, right? <laughs> I mean, because right. we always assume that executives know more than the public knows. And so if the executives are being really proactive and fast in issuing a recall, then it signals to shareholders that this is pretty bad. And so the authors did a study where they sort of tracked what the predicted stock hit would be versus the actual hit, and then categorized them according to proactive or not proactive recalls. And they found that proactive recall strategies actually lead to a 0.7% worse stock performance on the first day. Now, 0.7% doesn't seem like a big deal, but you got to remember, we're talking about just the 24-hour window from the time the, the recall was announced. And so that's, that's actually pretty measurable. And, you know, the, the limitations of the research make it hard to measure how long that stock impact goes on in the future. But... But, uh, you know, Samsung has lost about $15 billion in market value since this. And if the research in that area holds true, part of the reason they've done poorly is because they were proactive. And it signals to shareholders that, this, that the cause of the recall was, was very severe. Anyway, so that, yeah, that's the rundown. I, I think uh, it was really interesting looking into recalls and, and, and sort of the lessons on recalls, some surprising things there to find for sure that I'll be incorporating in my classroom. Great. Um, so I'm assuming you'll have some links that we can put up on the site as well that people can go to where you learn some of the stuff as well. Yeah, I will. I, unfortunately, both of the articles that I pulled on, or sorry, the two articles I mentioned at the end, those are both gated because they're academic articles and typically you have to pay for access to those, but I'll still provide the citations and then have some other useful resources that I found doing the research. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Aaron, for doing that for us this week. Um, our third segment will be fairly brief, but just to, in some ways to follow up on the segment we did last week, kind of reviewing other people's iPhone and watch reviews, we'll do a brief, uh, more of a first-party review now, I guess, since I've had the iPhone 7 Plus and Watch Series 2 since last Friday. Just wanted to kind of talk through some first impressions. And Aaron, feel free to chime in with any questions that you have as we go through. Um, I'm part of the, the Apple review program, so I get sent these devices as they come out. I don't get, get sent them quite as early as some other people do, but 
um, often get them sort of on or near the day that they're released to the general public. And so that was the case with these two devices as well. Um, I was sent the uh, iPhone 7 Plus and the Jet Black Finish. So um, I, I feel very privileged to have one of these devices that seem to be in very short supply otherwise. Um, I've been using it in a case, which Apple also sent as the black leather case. And so from the front, just looks very shiny, but you, you don't see the back at all in that case. And so I've, I've popped it out of the case just to, to have a look at today. And um, being in the case, it's been very well protected. So there are no scratches or anything, but it does show smudges and that kind of thing very clearly, as does the front for that matter. And I'm coming from two years of silver iPhones uh, where the front is white and so little dust specks and things like that don't really show up at all. On the black background, they very much do show up. And so uh, that's going to be the case on both the front and the back. Little little dust specks will show up a great deal and smudges too. I haven't had the scratching issue, but again, it's been in a case. So that's been a non-issue. Um, it is a 7 Plus, so it has the two lenses or cameras, depending on how you want to look at that. Um, and I've, I spent some time on Friday going on a hike in the mountains near here just to get a bunch of varied images and took a 6 Plus and 6S Plus with me as well and took a lot of the same pictures and videos with all three uh, phones and both the lenses on the 7 Plus just to kind of really put them through their paces. And I'll, I'll be doing a review in the next day or two in which I'll share the pictures and video and uh, do some comparisons of all that. But it really does hold up well. The 2X camera features really quite something um you know it's, it's a great option to have just gets you that much closer to a subject which I, if you either can't approach the subject more closely or you don't really want to get in somebody's face or it's an animal for example that would be spooked if you try to get too close uh, i've taken pictures of dogs and horses and so on in the past few days and it's been great just to get that much closer without actually having to physically move closer but it's useful for other things too. So this, I mentioned I was at a Samsung event on Monday where there were slides being projected onto a wall and I was sitting far enough back that if I'd taken them in the usual way, my shots have been quite small uh, of the slides, whereas with the 2X feature, I was able to magnify it and, and produce very usable images that I then inserted into my notes from the event. So very, very useful, uh, works very well. The one limitation with it is low light. Uh, and so if there's low light, even if you tap on the 2X button, it will end up using the 28 millimeter rather than 56 millimeter lens and using digital zoom. And the problem with that is it's not transparent. So it doesn't tell you it's doing that as you do it. And the pictures after the fact don't have any indication that that's what's happened either. And so that's the one sort of limitation. This is an inherent limitation with longer uh, lens lengths, <clears throat> excuse me, is that they let in less light. And so they're less useful in, uh, in a lower light. But other than that, it's been very good. Excuse me, just need to have a drink of water there. I'm losing my voice a bit. Um, other than that, everything seems a lot faster as it, as it usually does with, with these new iPhones. You know, the, Apple touted the performance improvements and so on during the, the launch event. And, and it's absolutely as you expect. Everything's just a little bit quicker. Apps perform faster. Getting in and out of apps is faster. Almost everything just happens more quickly. And, and, uh, and that's uh, something that you notice kind of throughout the experience with the phone. Um, the display seems a little brighter, but I haven't done a lot of testing or kind of really side-by-side -side comparisons. It seems very nice. It does seem a little easier to read outside. Um, so that's been a nice thing as well. Um, the home button is an interesting thing. I mean, I, I tried it out briefly in the hands-on area at the event. And, uh, you know, in comparison to the, the Magic Trackpad and the other stuff that Apple's done with its haptic feedback, where it's removed the actual movement and then kind of created this ersatz movement through the, the haptic feedback, 
Um, in the hands-on area, my first impression was, oh, I don't really like this very much. And I, I expected it to be something that would take a long time to get used to and that I wouldn't really like. The reality is within a few minutes of using it, I got used to it very quickly. It doesn't feel like it's moving in the way that some of these, some trackpads and things do. Um, so it's different in that sense, and it will take some adjustment. But within minutes, going back to my 6S Plus again and using the home button on that just felt clunky. Um, so it was, I very quickly got used to it. It feels very natural. It's actually quite a nice feeling to it. And you can actually uh, choose from one of three settings in terms of how much you, feedback you want it to give you. I think by default it goes to the middle of the three settings and that's what I've kept it on and it seems to be fine. But you can choose uh, how much feedback you want to get uh, from, from pushing the home button. It really does feel like it's preparing us for uh, a phone next year that won't have a home button at all and that will just allow you to press on the screen and get the feedback that way. Um, other than that, I'm trying to think what else is worth talking about. The, the speakers uh, are good, so it's louder now with two speakers. Uh, one of them at the bottom of the device where it's always been. The other one is in the earpiece. Uh, so you don't see it as a speaker. It doesn't really look much different from how that's looked previously. But you now get sound coming from both those places, which is louder and slightly clearer than it has been before. You still wouldn't want to listen to it for hours or anything like that. But it's perfectly fine for listening to a podcast or, or playing back a, a, a short video or something like that. Um, and then the headphone jack, I guess, is, is the obligatory thing that we have to talk about. The reality is I very, very rarely use... Uh, earbuds on my phone. Um, if I'm listening to music, I'm generally at my desk or, or have some other device where I can listen to it. I have uh, speakers in my office that I can airplay to from either my desk or my phone. And that's by far the most common thing that I do in the car. I, I've always used Bluetooth. I haven't used a cable in the car for a long time. I've had cars with Bluetooth for about the last seven years. So um, that really isn't a place where I need to plug something into my phone anyway. The earpods that come with the the device are perfectly fine. Um, there, there is an issue with the adapter that comes with the device where the controls stop working after about five minutes. It's been covered in the press and it sounds like Apple's going to try and issue a software fix for that, but that doesn't apply to the earpods themselves. They work fine on an iPhone. I use them with an iPad too. They work perfectly fine. The cable's actually a bit longer than the uh, previous earpods, which is nice, so less likely to get to the point where you're kind of pulling out them because you're getting too far away from your phone. Uh, but again, this really was a non-issue for me, frankly. I, I very rarely use wired earbuds with my phone and uh, almost never need to charge and use them at the same time. So that's been a total non-issue for me. I don't have the AirPods, so I haven't tried those yet. I'm hoping to do that um, in October, but uh, haven't had a chance to try those yet. But that's kind of been my, my main impressions of the hardware on the new iPhone. So, I mean, when you think about this from the perspective of an iPhone 6 owner, which is the likeliest, yeah. um, you know, target consumer for this. I mean, what are your thoughts? Is this like a, is this a no brainer? I mean, does it feel so much better that it's like, yeah, absolutely. You get one of these. Yeah, I think there's a few ways in which that's the case. Certainly the, the performance and speed improvements will be a really big noticeable difference. Um, as I mentioned, I, when I went for this hike on Friday, I took three phones with me, including the iPhone 6 plus, uh, just and I hadn't used that phone at all really in the last year or so, but um, in pulling it out again, I just noticed everything was kind of stuttering and taking a little bit longer as a noticeable difference just in things like opening the camera and shutting the camera down and switching between photo and video and so on. Part of that's obviously, you know, iOS 10 running on hardware that was designed for iOS 8 and, and, and the things that always happen with that. But, uh, you know, there will be a very noticeable uh, speed improvement. You notice it with the cameras very much as well. The, the biggest jump is actually from the 6 to the 6S. In terms of basic camera performance, the 6S has a wider 
uh, field uh, of vision, as it were. So it takes slightly higher resolution pictures. So in comparing pictures and videos, you notice that the framing is wider. You get more in the shot. Um, and there's a, an improvement in terms of color accuracy and various other things as well. You do also see an improvement even with the 28 millimeter camera on the 7. Um, and so if you add those two up, then again, it's a fairly significant improvement. You get things like 4K video, live photos, which frankly I don't use very much, but 4K video is actually useful in terms of being able to zoom in. If you're a long way away from your subject, you can zoom in quite a bit without losing resolution too much because you basically can just crop it to 1080p. And some of the sample videos that I took that will be in my review kind of uh, illustrate this a little bit. But if you combine the 2x optical zoom with... Uh, digital zoom on a 4K video to get to 1080p quality, you get essentially a 4x zoom uh, compared with the 6. And I, don't, I haven't really seen anybody talking about that, but it's it's something that, you know, it's a, quite a big leap if you go across those two devices, which again, as you said, is the standard sort of upgrade cycle. So that's worth noting. Um, you know, uh, you'll just see improvements all around basically in performance, and I think that's going to be the other big thing. But yeah, the, the overall performance improvements, the camera, um, the speakers, the display quality, um, you know, and especially if you go to the plus, obviously having the second camera as well, all of that's going to make a big difference. So it'll be quite a significant upgrade. So uh, our time's wrapping up, but talk a little bit about the watch. Yeah, so as other people have said, and this has really kind of rung true to me, I, I was running Watch OS 3 for about a week before I got the new watch. Um, and already found that made a huge difference. I liked a lot about it. The information density in the uh, workout view, for example, is a lot better and you really customize that. Um, the way that the apps work with the dock is, is a great concept. I feel like most apps still haven't updated to really take advantage of that. And so there's still a lot of apps that just spin and spin and don't do anything, even in that scenario. Um, the new watch is great. The GPS is fun. I'm not a runner. I, I always tend to have my phone with me anyway. Um, but I, I, when I did that hike, I did test this. So I basically turned Bluetooth off on my phone to simulate not having it with me. So the watch tracked my hike very accurately, and you get this nice little map at the end of a walk or run or bike ride that shows you exactly where you went. It tracked everything, and then I actually took a video of my uh, iPhone 7 at the end of it um, to show the activity update, activity app updating itself when I paired it back up with the watch again when I turned Bluetooth on. And you see the information very quickly transfers across in terms of the calories burned, in terms of the additional workout, in terms of everything else. So uh, it, the GPS works super well. Uh, for tracking a, a workout without having the phone with you. I'm not a swimmer. I haven't taken it swimming yet. Um, I did wear the watch in the shower the other day, and there's this clever little thing you can do afterwards where you expel the water through the speaker um, by a combination of kind of touches on the screen and then the, the digital crown, um, which is kind of how they keep water out of the speaker longer term. So that's quite fun to play around with. If you're a swimmer, it'll obviously make a much bigger difference than it would to me. Um, it's definitely faster. Um, but, you know, I, I really like my original Apple Watch. I feel like the software update, um, you know, also available in the last week or so, made a big difference to the performance of that. And so I think a lot of owners of Series 1 watches will be perfectly fine just hanging on to them for now. Um, they shouldn't feel the huge need to update unless they're in one of those two categories, swimmers or runners who really want either the GPS or the waterproofing. Yeah, I, I still got to say, after two years, right, from the design being locked down from the first generation to this next one, I'm, I'm surprised there aren't more changes. But, you know, who mm -hmm. knows? Maybe, maybe Series 3 is the really big deal. <laughs> yeah, and I, I expect, I, it's just speculation, obviously, at this point, I, I think Watch OS 4 will not run on the first watch. Right. I think the fact that they bumped up the processor 
in the Series 1 watches that they released recently as well means that the watches with the original processor probably won't be supported in watchOS 4 onwards. Um, that may well be disappointing to owners if it ends up being the case, and obviously I'm just speculating, but I see that as an indication of that. But watchOS 3 is already very good. I think you could be perfectly happy with the combination of an original watch and watchOS 3 for quite a long time to come. So well, Expect a lot of hair pulling and teeth gnashing if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, no <laughs> doubt, no doubt. <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap up with our weekly pick, and it's my turn since Aaron did the question of the week this week. And just very briefly, uh, one of the things that's new in iOS 10 is the ability to uh, take raw format images. And if you're not familiar with this, this is uh, something that's available in in high-end digital cameras uh, where you can take uh, images rather than in JPEG format, you take them in raw format, and that's really a generic term that describes lots of different formats. But the difference with RAW is it captures a lot more of the RAW data out of the image, hence the name, which makes it much easier to edit it afterwards non-destructively. So you can change, for example, the white balance in an image in a way that looks as if you took it that way in the first place. And you can change various other elements of how the image is in editing and post-processing uh, without affecting the original image and, and losing quality as you do so. And so being able to do that finally on the, on the, new, on the phones, any phone running iOS 10 is a really big deal. And there are a number of apps that are already taking advantage of that. So I just wanted to run through three of them very quickly. There's one called Manual Camera. There's one called Obscura Camera. And there's one called ProCam 4. Uh, Manual and Obscura both support RAW. Uh, You generally have to say that you want to take in RAW and then they'll output in their their own respective formats, which you can then edit either in those apps or elsewhere uh, in apps like uh, Adobe Lightroom that support RAW editing. Manual is $199, Obscura is $499. And then there's another app called ProCam 4. It's also $499. This is the only app I've found so far that supports RAW and also allows you to switch between the two lenses on the new 7 Plus. Um, and uh, that's really handy because obviously you want to be able to use the zoom but you also want to be able to output in RAW so that's the only app I'm available aware of right now that's ProCam 4 which supports both of those things so if you have a new iPhone or even if you're just running iOS 10 on an existing iPhone check out one of those apps to be able to take photos in RAW uh, which you can then edit uh, in a more useful and and non-destructive way going forward than you have been able to so far. Well, uh, up front, Aaron and I were talking about the fact this would probably be a shorter episode than usual, and yet we've gone uh, about as long as we ever do at just under an hour. So thanks for being with us. Hopefully you found that useful and interesting. Again, we'll include links to some of the things that Aaron talked about, uh, and I'll include links to uh, those apps that I just mentioned as well on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. We look forward to being with you again next week, and we hope you have a good week in the meantime. Thanks.